Well, it was New Year's Eve, 1999, at 11.50 p.m., and I was in a house that was on a lake and had a big dock, and so I walked out to the edge of the dock to spend the last 10 minutes of 1999 on the, on the roof of a dock. This dock had like a second level, a roof up there you could, it was safe to stand on, uh, standing up there, looking around, thinking to myself, okay, in the... 5% chance that the world is about to end, this is a pretty good place to watch it from. All right? Some of you remember that moment. People used to say we're going to party like it's 1999, and what they meant was we're going to party like the world was about to end because there were books in the bookstore and there were stories on the news about this whole thing called Y2K, right? There was, there was computer code embedded in everything. Everything was dependent on computers by this point. And the idea was that they had programmed the computers with a two-digit date for the year, 85 and then 86 and then 87. And when the clock struck and we went from 1231.99 to 1100, all the computers were going to break. Like, they were all going to be gone. And then the power was going to go out, and then the TV was going to go out, and the world was going to descend into chaos. And I was, you know, a smug teenager. I was in my senior year of high school, uh, and, and most of us looked around. We saw the books on the shelf at the bookstore, and we saw the news stories, and we were like, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, probably not. Uh, but there was this little part in the back of our minds for most of us that was like, well, I mean, maybe, I don't know. And then, hey, if that happens... I don't have to figure out what to do with my life, right? I'll never graduate high school. And so we would just kind of not really plan for the future because, you know, maybe that Y2 thing came, will, will come and will swallow all of us. And so I stood out there on the dock to see what was really going to happen, knowing that nothing would happen, but kind of wondering if maybe it would. And then 10 minutes later, boom, it was the fireworks show across the lake. And then behind me, my neighbor had some fireworks too. And so those went off real loud. And there I was, kind of disappointed that the world didn't end. And so I went back inside at about 12.05. I went to bed, woke up the next morning, and on January 1st realized I'm going to have to figure out what to do with my life. The world hasn't ended, right? There has often been, in American culture and Western culture, all over the place, really, some narrative about how the world is about to end. It's just, it's on our hearts to look for some story that tells us that in a few years, this thing is going to happen, and then that's going to trigger this other thing, and then in about 20 or 30 years, the world is going to end, or in five or six years, the world is going to end. And that was happening in the year 1000 AD. Uh, people predicted Jesus was going to come back in 1000 AD because the millennium would be over, and it's been happening over and over again through the Holocaust, predictions that the world was about to end. Uh, some of you remember the book, 88 reasons Jesus is going to come back in 1988. You guys remember that? Uh, and then a few of you might remember the follow-up. 89 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1989. Right? Uh, we have on us, what's going on here is there's just a hunger in all of our hearts. We know this thing is going to end catechismically. Like it's just written on our hearts. And so we're hungry to hear the details of just how it's going to go down. 
Uh, opportunistic teachers know that we're hungry for that, and so they will feed us all kinds of stories about Y2K. Some of them will use the Bible. It's very easy to buy into global warming today because it is a cataclysmic picture of how the world is going to end. I mean, putting the science aside, it's just a believable story that's already on our hearts. Of course the oceans are going to rise, and of course everything is going to end so terribly. And so I'm walking into this. We're diving into the book of Revelation for just one week, And I want you to know that I'm going into it assuming that you have heard some bad end times teaching in your life, like I did growing up with the Y2K. Uh, We've heard all kinds of stuff about this, and that has primed us to read the book of Revelation with the wrong goal. We've been trained to read Revelation to predict the next step of world politics, right? In this book, I will find what is next with Russia or what's next in the war with Ukraine or what's going to happen next over in China or Africa to decode 21st century geopolitics the same way we were trying to decode 20th century geopolitics through the book. And I want to tell you, that's not why John wrote the book. He told us why he wrote the book. He wants us to conquer. That's the word Jesus uses. Seven times, I think once for each of the seven churches, to the one who conquers, I will give the crown of life, a new name that no one knows. He wants us to conquer. And he tells us how to conquer. Churches that are in sin repent from their sin. That's how they conquer. Churches that are suffering persecution cling fast to Jesus Christ. And that's how you conquer. So the point of the book of Revelation, what the Lord wants us to do with all of this imagery and all of the amazing things that happen to it is turn from our sin and cling to Jesus Christ in our suffering. That means if you're reading a part of it and it fills you with energy and the way you express that energy is by mapping out the world nations chart or getting the prophecy chart all together and trying to figure out in just what order everything is going to happen, you're sending your energy the wrong direction. The Lord wants to build up all that energy in you so that with that zeal you will turn from your sin and with that zeal you will hold fast to Jesus Christ whatever comes. So we're going to look at Revelation 13 this morning with that very desire, with that desire to conquer whatever comes next in the name of Jesus Christ. Here's the setup for Revelation 13. If you're curious about these kind of things, uh, I walked us through Revelation 12 almost a year ago, the last Sunday of last year. You can go back and find that on the podcast. Chapter 12 ends with a dragon moving his war that he is fighting away from a symbolic figure of a woman to the woman's offspring. And this is all symbolic. The dragon is a symbol of Satan himself, who has, up until the birth of Jesus, warred against the people of Israel to try to prevent the birth of Jesus. His great goal in human history up to the day Jesus was born was try to prevent Jesus from being born. That's why all those stories in the Old Testament are the way they are. He is attacking that bloodline to try to stop Jesus from coming. He fails. Jesus is born. Jesus will one day rule all of creation and crush this dragon. And so in his failure, he becomes enraged at Israel. And it says he goes off to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who are they? It says those who hold fast to the word of God and to Jesus Christ. It is the church. So 
the war has shifted, right? Jesus has died, risen, he is up in heaven. Satan says, okay, I still hate Israel, but now my war is against the church. And then he goes and stands on the edge of the seashore. And that's the end of the chapter. And you're like, wait, what's going to happen, right? Like whatever he's about to do, it's going to be his war against the church. How is he going to fight this war against the church? Well, whatever happens after he's standing on the seashore, is he going to take the church and throw them into the sea? Is he going to take the sea and throw it onto the church? Like what's going to happen? Whatever happens next is his big tactic for fighting against the church because he's done fighting Israel. He still hates them. Now he is fighting against the church. So here is What happens after he stands on the edge of the sea? Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Hear. Is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the, first, for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. 
6. The words of the Lord. Through that vision, Jesus calls Christians who are suffering under monstrous governments to endure faithfully. He says the word here is the call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Every image we just read is to call Christians who are under governments like this or one day will be under the big one that is coming to endure faithfully. Now, God gave to us the government as, as a gift. He gave his leaders as a gift. And we see in 2 Samuel 23, David, who led a flourishing kingdom, uh, kind of gives the secret to what makes government good. He says, when one rules justly, uh, ruling in the fear of God, uh, he dawns on the people he leaves like the sun over wet grass. So when, when a king or a leader or a president or a father or someone who's been entrusted with leadership uh, looks up to God and, and trembles and says, I am accountable to you for how I lead, and I know I will answer to you for how I lead, and so I worship you. And so I will treat these people justly and I will bring justice to this land because that's what you want. When a God-fearing leader functions like that, people just grow like grass does in the spring and the autumn when the sun and the rain are on it. They just flourish. Kingdoms flourish like that. And that is better than having no leader at all. A good king, a good leader is better than anarchy. But what Satan loves to do, and we see here one of his favorite attacks on the church, is to turn that gift into a self-worshipping monster, a king that demands worship and devours its own people. Satan loves to turn government that direction, and when he does, the image he uses for it is the image of a beast. It's an image used often in the Old Testament and called upon again here in the New Testament. So, what he's writing about here is on one hand, generally, these monstrous beast-like governments that rise up, hold absolute power, devour many of their people, and demand worship. And there's enough in here and more in later chapters to tell us there must be a big one coming. You may have heard about you know, the beast that will one day rise. One day, the picture we get is of some worldwide monstrous government like this before our Lord returns. And what John is doing here is he's writing to show us what those monstrous governments look like, what those beast-like governments look like, so that we can figure out, am I in one right now? And if so, what do I do if I'm in one? Also, so that we can be ready in case we are alive or our children are the ones who are alive when the big one finally comes. So what we're going to do this morning then is we're going to dive into the image of a beast and how it's used in the Old Testament to kind of tease out this picture that God is giving us. And then we'll look at qualities of a monstrous or beast-like government that John gives us here. And finally, spend just a little bit of time on that last part of chapter 10. What do we do if we find ourselves under one of those governments? So first... What do we get out of the picture of, of a beast? What John sees is one beast coming out of the sea. 
And it's got all kinds of different qualities. It's got the parts of a leopard and parts of a bear and mouth of a lion. And it's got also horns and then heads and then crowns on the horns. And, and, and what's going on here is this is a picture of many beasts that are pictured in the book of Daniel all rolled together into one. Uh, the image of a beast is used often in the book of Daniel. Uh, that brings us to a key principle for interpreting the book of Revelation. If you want, you want a good, good guide for interpreting the book of Revelation, it's this. Uh, put, put down the newspaper first and pick up your Old Testaments. Because the strange things in Revelation, the numbers, the pictures, the images... They're not your secret decoder ring for the New York Times. That's not what they are. They're Old Testament images. And so the first place you need to look to understand something strange in Revelation is in the Old Testament. Now, where do we see beasts in the Old Testament? Lots of places, but especially two. The book of Daniel and the book of Job. In the book of Daniel, there's a great king named Nebuchadnezzar, and he has all power over his people and he is devouring his people he's great in pride he is demanding the worship of his people and at one point the lord lowers him and humbles him to the point that he is in the field eating grass like a beast right the lord lowers him and makes him into a beast at another point in the book of daniel he has a vision daniel has a vision and it is of four beasts rising out of the sea. And each of these four beasts have some of the qualities of this one beast. One looks like a leopard, one looks like a bear, one looks like a lion, and the last one has ten horns. So it's like all of those qualities are being rolled together in this beast of Revelation 13. Now, in Daniel, those particular beasts represent particular empires. The first one representing Babylon that was at that moment holding all authority, devouring people, demanding that people worship it. The second beast represented Persia, which was the same way. And then the third beast represented Greece, which was the same way. The fourth beast represented Rome, which was the empire ruling the day that John was writing. The very empire that had exiled and imprisoned John and was persecuting Christians, even shedding the blood of Christians and Jews in that very day. So all four of those empires represented by those four beasts. They're all ferocious. They're all devouring their own people. They're all cruel kings and empires. And they're all particularly targeting God's people and demanding worship from everyone. If you lived in Babylon and you heard the sound, you were supposed to kneel down and worship the image of the emperor. And then Persia became like that. Rome was like that. Christians were drugged into a room with incense and with idols and told, uh, we hear that you are not willing to worship the emperor. Prove the rumors wrong by bowing down and worshiping the statue of the emperor now. Right? Same kind of demanding worship that was going on even, even then. So we kind of get all those beasts rolled into one to see that this beast is sort of a picture of all those governments. And at the same time, a picture of a coming government that will be like all of those governments. So we gain from Daniel that they are ferocious, bloodthirsty governments that demand worship. There's another place that this imagery is used in the Old Testament. It's the book of Job. Uh, here in Revelation 13, you have two beasts, right? One comes out of the sea. And the other beast, the second beast, comes from the land. So you have a sea beast and a land beast. Uh, 
Now, you also have a sea beast and a land beast in the book of Job. Uh, the Lord is coming to speak to Job. Job is under great suffering. He does not realize that God is so sovereign over his suffering and what is going on. And so God shows up to Job to tell him, you have no idea how sovereign I am over all of this. And one of the pictures that he uses is two beasts. He says, Job, what can you do about behemoth and Leviathan, the great land beast and the great sea beast? He says they're these great, ferocious monsters, and we've tried forever to figure out, you know, what dinosaur or woolly mammoth is he talking about? We don't really know. Uh, but he says these great, ferocious monsters that you cannot touch, but I am sovereign over. He says of the sea monster, he says, Job, I dare you, lay your hand on Leviathan. He says, you will remember the battle, you will not do it again, all right? If you lay your hand on him, it, you won't do it again with what he will do to you. But then he says, well, in heaven, I can put a fish hook in his mouth whenever I want. I can draw him up out of the ocean. I can put a rope in his nose, and I can sling him over to the kids to let them play with him like a pet. So, so here's, here's the monsters that are, to us, frightening and scary. We would never dare lay our hands on them. But the Lord looks down upon them, and to him, they're like a little kitten that he makes memes out of when it falls off the counter trying to chase a fly, right? They're just like this little furry furball. So we gain from Job then that those ferocious monsters are to God a joke, right? He just laughs at them. So then we roll all that together and these pictures of this beast, what does this beast represent? It represents ferocious governments that are scary to us, but are a joke to God, because God rests on the throne, sovereign over all of them. That's what we gain from the symbolism of a beast. Now, I know some of you are looking at that and a little surprised. Wait a minute, I thought this was about the big government that was coming. Yeah, we have enough in Revelation to say a big one is coming, but that's not what John is focused on here, right? This, this beast fits almost perfectly for them, the very government that they were living under that day in Rome, demanding their worship, devouring their people, doing all of these things uh, with a propaganda arm that did the very things that the second beast does here and even kind of a state church going on there. So it isn't just the future worldwide government that we think is coming. It's also any of these ferocious empires today. President Xi's regime in China that demands the worship of its people and devours its own people. Vladimir Putin in Russia demanding the worship of his people and devouring his people. Adolf Hitler many years ago devouring so many and demanding worship and loyalty from his people. These governments are granted authority to rule for the whole season and there will be governments like them from now until Jesus comes back. And so what we must ask is how do I know if I'm living under one and what do I do if I am living under one? So then we dive into the actual text, and, and here are then the qualities of a beast. I'm going to give you, kind of quickly rattling them off some of them, eight qualities of a, of a beast-like government. The idea is we, we need to know what one looks like, and if you're in one, endure faithfully. Okay, first quality of a monstrous, ferocious, beast-like government. They devour their own people. We gain that from the image of a beast, right? If you were ruled by a bear... You'd 
be worried about the bear eating you, right? It's part, embedded in the image, and it's something all these governments do. These beasts devour their own people. You can think uh, concentration camps, right? Sh- people shedding the blood of their own people. Uh, you can think uh, mass starvation enforced by communist regimes like Mao and, and Lenin and Stalin. Uh, anytime the government begins to turn on its own people, state-run abortion bills, mills, and there's mass bloodshed of a government's own people at the hands of a government. This is the red claw of the beast and the red tooth of the beast showing itself. It's one way you know you're living under a beast government. Second, they hold absolute power. We see that in verses 4, 5, and 7. In verse 4, they worship the dragon because the dragon has given his authority to the beast. So Satan, who is right now the prince of the powers of the air, gives that authority to the beast. They've got absolute power. In verse 5, toward the end, it's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. I wish I could dive into that 42 symbol. I take it to mean for the entire season, the entire time. And then in verse 7... It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, on one hand, that's a scary image. Some of you, it might relieve from your fear because I know some of you are concerned, well, what if I get tricked and I vote for the beast, right? What if I get tricked into following the movement and voting for a beast-like person? And there is, even in this scary image, a voice of assurance. So you you don't have to worry about that. If a beast like this rises up in our land or for our children in our land, the good news slash bad news is you don't have to worry about voting. They will be granted absolute power, and the people will not have the ability to vote them out of office. So on one hand, let that relieve you of that burden of, oh, I hope I don't get tricked into voting for them. On the other hand, the truth is actually scarier. We won't get to vote against them when and if they rise up in our land. So that's number two. They, they hold absolute power. You can think back to that image of Leviathan, right? I dare you to lay your hand on it, God says. You'll remember the battle. You won't do it again. They will be too powerful and too fearsome for us to rise up against. All right, number three. Beast governments mock God by blaspheming him and by imitating him. Uh, we see that first in verses one and six. In verse one, this beast has blasphemous names on its head. So it is taking names like in Rome, uh, the divine Julius. That was what they called Caesar in Rome, as if to say he was God. Or Pharaoh back in Egypt, the son of God, he was called. Uh, These leaders take for themselves names that are blasphemous and say, I am God. And then in verse 6, these beasts, it opens its mouth and it utters blasphemies against God, blaspheming both his name and his dwelling. So it's not just accepting a name like Yahweh or the divine one or something like that, but it is even saying, everyone, come worship me. I am God. I am the one that you should worship, uttering blasphemy in this way. Other ways that it mocks God is simply by pretending to do some of the things that God has done in in history. Uh, In verse 3 and then later in verse 13, 
we read that it at least pretends to, in some way, die and rise again. But, but it's a trick, right? It appears to have a mortal wound on its head. Right? It's a trick. Who do we know that di- really did die and rise, though, right? The one we worship, Jesus Christ, right? So he's mocking the actions of Jesus by pretending to die and rise himself. And then everyone marvels and says, wow, who can stand against this one who has died and rose? And everyone comes and worship all in a mockery of the real thing, all in the mockery of God. Uh, we see later, I think it's in 13, that it performs great signs. That's what's in 13. It's not that it dies and rises again. It performs great signs in verse 13, even making fire come down from earth, from heaven to earth in front of people. There's another Old Testament picture. When did fire come down to earth? When Elijah said, my God's the real God and I'm going to prove it. Here's fire coming down from heaven to devour this offering, right, to consume this offering. So here is the beast and then the second beast that we'll get into later, pretending to be God, doing the sorts of things that God does so that people will worship them. And here is perhaps the, the scariest ripoff of all. Think of the three of these figures together. You've got the dragon, you've got the first beast, and the second beast, right? It says that the dragon was worshipped because he gave his authority to the first beast. Okay, so you've got one figure who is receiving all the glory and has given a name above all names or an authority to the second figure because the second figure died and rose. And then the third figure comes in, this is the second beast, calling everybody, sent by the second beast and calling everybody to worship the third beast. Who do these three sound like? The Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are forming a mockery of the Trinity, an unholy Trinity. And it looks so much like the real thing that those under their power say, wow, this, this is the most powerful thing I've ever known, the most powerful thing I've ever seen. And they bow down and they worship, either deceived into doing it or forced into doing it. So in these ways, these beast governments mock God by imitating Jesus, by imitating the Trinity, by taking holy names upon themselves. Uh, sometimes this happens in atheist regimes a little differently. Uh, atheist regimes like in China or in North Korea, uh, they will instead of insisting that they are God, they'll say there is no God and I'm the supreme leader. You see how that works? Like God is removed I'm the supreme leader, and so who's on top? Me, right? Worshipped as God, loved as God, loyal to as God. So sometimes this even happens in atheist regimes like in China and in North Korea. All right, number four, kind of corresponding with the third one. In response to the blasphemy and the imitation, people worship them. People all over the world worship them. Their followers worship them. We see that in verse 4, after the beast appears to die and rise, they worship the dragon and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Who is like the beast? That's another Old Testament phrase. Who is like the Lord, they say often. Who is like God, Micah will say, and we'll get there soon when we walk through Micah. Again, in verse 8, in verse 12, in verse 15, you see people bowing down and worshiping them. This is another way you can know you're living under this kind of government. People don't just look to them to do the things governments do. They begin worshiping the government as if it is God, taking that step into blasphemy and idolatry. 
Number five, uh, beast governments use a mouthpiece. And we begin to see this with the second beast in verses 11 to 17. In verse 11, we have a second beast. That This one comes from the earth. And it looks like a lamb. It has two horns like a lamb, but it talks like a dragon, right? So who else is the lamb in the book of Revelation? Jesus, right? So a little bit of appearance of Jesus, kind of looks like Jesus. But when he speaks, he speaks like a dragon. What dragons do we know, right? Satan, the the deceiver, the one who speaks lies. So here is one who kind of has the face of God, looks like God, but is speaking deception and lies. We're told in later cycles of this prophecy, this one is called the false prophet or somebody who rises up and speaks the words of the first beast. Uh, In verse 12, it exercises the beast's authority, calls everyone to worship the first beast. In verse 13, it uh, it performs great signs. In verse 14, by those signs, uh, many bow down and worship, they make an image Uh, In verse 15, they call them to do the same. And then in 16 and on, he marks loyal followers of the beast with a mark, which we'll get into in a little bit. So I take this to represent that state media, state church arm, that propaganda machine of the beast, the one that does the talking for the emperor. You might think the state media going in Russia right now spouting out with wonderful lighting and probably great dress the glories of our great conquest in the Ukraine, right? That state propaganda arm that's just deceiving everybody into believing and worshiping what Putin is doing. Similar things happening in Korea, similar things happening in China. Smaller versions of that from tribal lords in Africa happens all over. Whenever these beast government rise, they use a state media arm, a state communication arm to deceive everybody. Often they'll use a state church as well, and this has been something that's happened more, more in history than it happens today. Uh, you might think of in Russia, there's a picture, I think it was on Time magazine, of the, the highest high priest in the Russian Orthodox Church blessing and anointing Vladimir Putin as he went off to his courageous war, right? Like the state church blessing what the state emperor does so that everyone will be deceived into worshiping him. Right? This, is, this is something what I take the second beast to mean as it points everybody to worship the first beast through deception, through trickery, and we'll see later through force. So they use these mouthpieces to do their talking and call everyone to worship them. Numbers six and seven are the two techniques that that state propaganda arm uses to get people to worship. And those are deception and and threats, deception and force, you might say. So number six is uh, beast governments tend to use, through their propaganda arm, deception to trick people into worship. Uh, We have already seen that a few times. There was the fake death and the resurrection. There was the uh, second beast uttering all sorts of things that deceive those believers or those unbelievers into worshiping. It's a trick, though. It's deception, and they are deceiving their people into worshiping them. And then seventh, they're also using threats and force. So if we can't trick you into worshiping us, we will force you into worshiping us. You see that in verse 10. If anyone's taken captive, captivity he goes. If anyone's to be slain with the sword, to the sword, by the sword, he must be slain. And then in verse 17, 
No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So if you're not a loyal follower and worshiper of this ferocious beast government, you're threatened with imprisonment, with execution, with exclusion from society, and with impoverishment. So if the deception doesn't get you, then the force will get you. And we've seen this happen in all of these beast-like governments that have come up. This is how the Nazi party rose to power. They scared so many of their people into following what they did. This is what happens in Russia when somebody speaks out against the president and all of a sudden they've disappeared, right? If anyone is to captivity, to captivity he goes because Putin has all of the power there. So if the deception doesn't get you, then the force will. And lastly, number eight, Beast governments mark loyal followers by saturating them in their teaching. This is how I take that mark, 666. Let's read verses 16 to 18. This is the part you might have the most questions about. Okay, second beast. Causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked. Remember these two places, on the right hand or on the forehead. We'll come back to those later. Remember those. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, and that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay, what do you need to solve that riddle and figure out what 666 is? You need wisdom. You need understanding. How do you find wisdom? Right, we, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And pouring over his word and taking in his word. So that means if you really, really, really know the word of God, if you really know the Old Testament, you have all of the information you need to add it up and figure out what this means. So what could some of these things mean? Well, let's start with the numbers. In Old Testament imagery, the number seven is, is God's number. It's divine. It's perfect. There's nothing lacking in it. The Lord made the earth and then rested on the seventh day, and he embedded a seven-day week into creation. And the number seven is often on God's work. And so here's the number seven. It is perfect. It is not lacking anything. It is divine. Mankind was made on the sixth day. And so the number six is mankind's number. And, you know, on a scale of one to seven, six is a pretty big number. Like, I'd be pretty happy being a six out of seven, right? And other creatures are made on lower days, and the beasts were made just a little bit before us. And so here we are, the, the grandest and greatest thing in God's creation, right, uh, represented by the number six. We're over all the fives and all the fours and all the threes and all the twos and all the ones, but we aren't quite seven, right? So we're still incomplete. We're still imperfect we have not attained to the seven so all throughout the old testament you see the number seven representing god perfection and divinity and you see the number six representing mankind sometimes even corruption at the very least imperfection and not reaching divinity so the number six then it even says is the number of man right so it's man somehow repeated three times when something is repeated three times like that, when it is triplicated, you might say it like that, uh, it's a sign that it's just being repeated with great force, right? And that whatever it is, like you're fully and completely in on, on that. 
So you might think of the Holy Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three are one and all three are perfectly God, like this perfection of three, this completion of three. So to have six repeated like that, the number of incompletion of man repeated three times is to be sort of completely incomplete, or we would use the same imagery when we say, I'm going to triple down on that, right? I'm not even going to double down on that. I'm going to triple down on that, right? Because I'm all in. I'm completely there. And so to be completely there on mankind is to be six, six, six. To be kind of there and, yeah, man, man's ideas are good is to just be a six. To be all in is to be six, six, and six. Now, why would that kind of we are all in on mankind be marked on people's hands and foreheads? That's a strange sign, right? Are we all going to get tattoos that are either 777 or 666 to mark which ones we are? And nothing like that is happening in Russia or China or anywhere where this stuff is going on. What's happening? This is picking up an Old Testament image in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I actually want you to see it. So let's turn all the way back to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 is a high point in the scriptures. The Lord is giving them his law. And he is calling them to show their loyalty to him by absorbing all of his law, saturating themselves in his law, and walking in his ways. That's kind of the message of Deuteronomy. Hear this word, receive it, and and do it, is the message of Deuteronomy. He says this in chapter 6. We'll start with verse 4. Some of you have this verse memorized. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. So essentially, so far, he is saying, I want you guys all in. I want you to love me with all you have and be all in on my ways. Okay, we go on. He says, and these words that I command you, here's what it would look like if they were all in. These words I command you today, this shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You should talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Right? So there's a picture of somebody who is all in on God's words and God's ways. They're teaching them to their kids. They're on your heart all the time. They're on your mouth all the time. You're just swimming in God's teachings, fully saturated in God's teachings. And look at the symbol that comes in the next verse. This is verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What's that sound like? A mark on your hand and on your forehead, right? Now, he was not commanding Israel, I want you to tattoo the first table of the Ten Commandments on your hand and the other table of the Ten Commandments on your forehead, right? That's not what he was asking them to do. But he says this is a sign a mark needs to be on your hands and on your forehead. Now, we take that in the context of that passage, and what does he mean? He means you need to be so saturated in my law, my ways, my teaching, that it's on your head all the time, 
and it's on your hands all the time. In other words, it marks your thinking. Somebody asks your thinking about something, and what comes out of your mouth is seven, 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 right? Because the Lord's ways have saturated your mind. Someone watches your lifestyle, what you do with your hands, and the way that you are obeying God's ways all the time. And what they are seeing is with your hands, seven, 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 right? You're marked by God's ways, a front lip between your eyes and a mark on your hands. That's what somebody who is all in, who is saturated in the Lord's ways will do. Now, what would happen if somebody was saturated instead in the teachings of man and the ideologies of man? What would their thinking be marked with and their lifestyle and their hands be marked with? Not 777, right? Six, six, six. It'll be on your foreheads because you're thinking on the teachings of man all the time. It'll be on your hands because you're living by whatever the world around you is teaching. And so you have it marked on your hands and on your foreheads, six, six, six. This is how those beast-like governments mark their loyal followers. Absorb yourself in our teachings. Brainwash yourself in our teachings until you're speaking the lingo, until you're thinking the way that we tell you to think, until you are believing what we tell you to believe, and then do with your hands what we tell you to do. And eventually it gets so powerful that the force is, if you don't think like we think and you don't do like we do, you're cast out of society, right? You don't get to buy, sell, and trade because you're not marked with the thinking and the lifestyle that we're marked with. So the mark of the beast then is being saturated in its ideology so that your thinking and your actions show your loyalty to it. So how do we avoid being marked, right? Maybe you're breathing a sigh of relief because like, oh, thank God it's not supermarket scanners. It's not Apple Pay. Like it's not all the things that people have said that it is, right? How do we avoid the actual mark don't absorb, don't listen to the world's teachings. Now, you may need to understand them to fight against them or argue against them, but saturate yourself in the perfect seven, in the teachings, the ideology, the ways of this book. And your thinking and your hands in time will be marked with those perfect numbers, seven, seven, and seven. So that's the eighth way we know we're under a beast government, when they are marking their followers' loyalty by saturating them in their teachings. That is what the mark of the beast means. All right, now we got to ask, John wants us to look at those qualities and say, okay, is that the kind of government that I'm living in right now? And if so, what do I do? Uh, And I think as we look at those eight qualities, it's pretty clear, we may have some miniature versions of some of those, but we certainly don't have a full-blown beast government. Right? Like we still all hope to vote in November. Right? It doesn't hold absolute power over us. It isn't yet demanding our worship. It could slide into that very quickly upon us or upon our children. We need to be ready for that. But we're not living there quite yet. However, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are living under a government that looks just like this. Who is just feeding false teaching to them all the time. 
forcing them into worship, attacking their churches, shutting the power off on their churches, a beast that is just going after our brothers and sisters. And what these images ought to move you to do is pray for them, pray for our brothers and sisters. And be ready in the event that our beloved country falls into this kind of government. We don't know what will come tomorrow. Some of us think we know, but we don't know what's going to come tomorrow. So we must be ready if our land falls into that sort of government. Be ready to stand strong. Be ready to stand firm. This is what John means when he gives the only command and call of the whole passage. Let's flip back to chapter 13 of Revelation. At the end of verse 10... He spends just a small amount of time telling us what to do. We get a lot of information about what they look like. Very small amount of time on what to do. What do you do? Last line of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. That's the application in this whole passage. If you're ever under that kind of government, what do you do? You endure in faith. Other pieces of Revelation say this differently. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, right? They held fast to Jesus Christ. Or Jesus will say to some of the churches, blessed is the one who holds fast and conquers. And to him, I will give great blessing. What do we do if we find ourselves under that sort of government? We endure faithfully. We conquer, this is important, not by fighting it. Some of you might be hearing teaching from people that are saying that our government will soon turn into this kind of thing. And usually it is a call to arms. It's when are we going to pick up our weapons? When are we going to fight against this evil government? And Revelation, that's not how you conquer the beast government. You conquer by holding fast to Jesus Christ. Blessed are they for they love not their lives even unto death. You don't conquer by rising up with your sword and killing it. You conquer when it kills you because you would not deny Jesus Christ. That's how you conquer, right? So we conquer by clinging to Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are under beast governments. So there's Revelation 13 for us, a call to endure if our government ever becomes beastly in this way. I think this is a call to prayer, right? It's, it's fearful, it's scary. So we're gonna spend a few moments in prayer just asking the Lord not to let this happen here, to prepare us for a day if it does, and then we'll pray for our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. Let's pray.